with that, of course, we are continuing in our look at the Gospel of Luke. And today we are going to be looking at the eighth chapter of Luke, verses 4 through 21. So I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes this, When a large crowd was gathering, as people were coming to him, being Jesus, from town after town, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on a path and was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As he said this, he called out, If you have ears to hear, then hear. Then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others I speak in parables so that looking they may not perceive and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And the ones on the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe only for a while and in a time of testing fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for that, in the good soil, these are the ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with endurance. No one, after lighting a lamp, hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed. Rather, one puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. So pay attention to how you listen. For to those who have, more will be given, and and from those who do not have, even what they seem to have will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. But he said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us in this time. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, so the main thrust of our passage today uh, encircles a parable. And Luke has given us a couple of kind of smaller parables, uh, but this is kind of the kickoff to more and more kind of what we call narrative parables that we find in Luke's gospel. So what exactly is a parable? Why does Jesus like using parables? Well, a parable more literally simply means that which is tossed alongside. What that means, of course, is that it's just a a way of telling a story that helps to exemplify or helps us to be able to see in a different way exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to teach. There's a theologian named C.H. Dodd. He was a a Welsh theologian, and he came up with what's kind of a classical uh, definition for a parable. Here's what uh, what that definition is. At its simplest, 
the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. So what a parable does, first of all, is it begins with something very common, if you will, right? So when he's talking about a a sower and he's talking about seed and he's talking about soil and he's talking about rock or he's talking about weeds, these are things that people would all have known. Every day they would have seen this. And in so doing though, then they would have been reminded of the parable. They would have been reminded of the word of God. It's the same reason why we talk about the things that we do here, right? With things like baptism today. We'll have a baptism at both services and we'll use water. And do we use special water? No. What kind of water do we use? Tap water, right? Very normal water. Why? Because when you go home and you turn on the tap, what we want you to do is we want you to remember your baptism, to remember that you have been claimed by God, to remember that you are loved by the Almighty each and every time. And so we use these kind of very common symbols so that our faith is always there in our minds. And then, of course, it goes on. This is one of the more important parts I think about parables is that it's there, uh, Dodd says, to tease uh, our minds. It's there, in other words, so that we don't just remain spectators, right, but that we become actual participants in what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't just kind of say, here's what you're supposed to do. With a parable, you have to wrestle with it. What exactly does it mean? And what is the significance of this parable in my life? One of the great things about parables is that they lower our defenses. Sometimes we think parables are for children. They're not. They're actually created for adults. And you remember maybe the parable that Nathan gave to David in the Old Testament. I won't go all into it other than to say he told it this whole story where David could see the story very clearly and he answered the question correctly. And in so doing, all of a sudden, he realized his own hypocrisy that he had not seen before. Parables do a remarkable job of lowering our defenses. They help us to see things in a unique way. So we have the parable then here of Jesus. And what does it mean to us? Well, one of the important things I think that we should do is we should figure out and remember where we begin. The right place to begin when it comes to this particular parable is not with the soil, but instead is with the sower. Oftentimes when it comes to this parable, we want to dive right to the, to the soil. Why is that? Well, partly it's simply because of the fact that the soil is the thing that changes. It's the variable. So we want to know why this variable, why do things change? But I also think it's probably because of the fact that the soil is us. And when it comes to any story, we always want to get to us, right? What, what do I do? What's the significance to me? But one of the things that we've learned when it comes to the gospel of Luke is it's always important to remember where do we begin? And so we begin actually with the sower. What do we see about the sower? We see about the sower that the sower, of course, is quite reckless. Is he not? He's just casting this seed out to all 
different kinds of places. He seems to have no care that it's not just going to the soil. It's really good. He's casting it upon the walk where people are walking. He's casting it where there's rock. He's casting it wherever there are weeds. He's casting it everywhere. It is this beautiful reminder before we ever get to the soil, before we ever get to the fact of, wait, 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 what does this have to do with me? It begins with this reckless love and generosity of the sower. The reckless love and generosity of God. And this is where it must begin. As I was thinking about that this week, I realized that in many ways, one way to perhaps remember this is, is that if you don't start at the right place, you will inevitably run the wrong race. Let me say this again. If you do not start at the right place, you will inevitably run the wrong race. Here's what I mean. If you're out in an airport, you know, and you're there and there's that moving sidewalk, you know, the moving sidewalk, it's always great and they rarely ever work. And and so you go and if you start from the wrong place, if you start down at this end and it's going this direction, right? This is typically what you see kids whose parents just let them run wild. Uh, you'll see, I'm just kidding if that's your kid. Uh, and so there you are and they're just trying to go the wrong way, right? And you're walking and you're walking and you're like, gee whiz, how am I not making any traction here? How am I not getting anywhere? And you're sweating and you're tired and you're like, gee whiz, what's happening here? And you're not going any direction or You could start from the right place, of course, right? And then you could just begin to move quickly, quickly, quickly. And all of a sudden, it's like you have the winds behind you. When you start from the wrong place and you think, what I have to do is earn the love of the sower. I have to take my soil and put it up here so that he'll put the seed on. I have to earn the love. It is like walking the wrong direction and you will never achieve it. It feels like you're doing something, but you're like, oh, I'm constantly moving and nothing is happening. But when you begin with the love of the Almighty, when you begin knowing that the seed has been cast, the grace has been poured into you, then all of a sudden you begin to realize that the reason why you do what you do is not in order to gain that love. It is out of a great abundance and thankfulness and gratitude for what God has done for you. If you start From the wrong place, you will run the wrong race. But if you start from the right place, if we start out of the sense of who the sower is casting out seed, then all of a sudden we begin to receive that love and grace and then we respond to that. Now here's the other significance about starting with the sower, it seems to me, and not just losing track of him. is because if we are supposed to live like that, if we are supposed to be shaped like Jesus, then it changes who we are as a church Because then we begin to love and to be full of grace and generosity, not just those who we think and who we deem worthy, as Keith Nichols says. No, but we simply give and we are generous and we take risks and we love graciously. Why? Because it is who God is. And if we are shaped like Jesus, then it is what we are called to do. I've seen churches who have spent way too much time. They've been way too afraid. We, you know, we only have so much we can do. We only have uh, so much generosity, so much grace. And so they hold on to it. It's a bit like, You know, um, um, when you're in a float or you're in a parade and you've got a bag of candy and maybe you're concerned that you're going to run out. And so so you just kind of hold on to it, you know, and you try to find some little kid who looks like he really wants it. Not some parent who, you know, is going to steal the candy as soon as you give it to the kid. And 
And so you just kind of hold on to it. And then you've reached the end of the parade and you realize that you still have this whole bag. And you could have been affecting joy all along, but you just kind of held on to it. There are far too many churches who kind of hold on to their grace and to their love and to their generosity because they're afraid they might run out. I I think rather we should be like those kids, and there's plenty of these, who basically give everything out in the beginning, but then they turn around and there's a whole nother big bag that gets poured into there so that then they can keep giving and keep giving. This is who we want to be, which means that we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna show love. We're gonna be generous. We're gonna be full of grace. And there's gonna be a lot of times when there's no success. I've told you all before that when I was in Chicago, we had this apartment complex uh, that abutted our, uh, our church building and we were always trying to do new things. And, and there was one time when we did all this work to get one of our rooms ready for their computer lab. And you know, we did all of this. With, oh, they're gonna love this. They told us this is what they want. Oh, we're gonna have this big grand opening. We had a charcuterie board. We had everything. <laughs> and like one to two people came over at this grand opening. It was so embarrassing. And that was a Saturday, and the very next day I had to stand up in front of the congregation, and I knew what we were all thinking, right? There was this huge elephant in the room, and I just felt shame and embarrassment, and I gave some voice to it, but I was just so glad to be done with the whole thing, and I wish that I would have leaned into this particular parable, because it is this great sign that it's not up to us, and we just keep trying, and we keep trying to be loving and and generous and full of grace, and sometimes it will all of a sudden reap all all this harvest and sometimes you will get nothing, but you just keep going. We don't get it for the results. We do it because we are being faithful to the Almighty. So we begin with the sower. But then, of course, we get to the soil and we begin to see all of a sudden that there are lots of reasons why people's faith does not flourish, why the seed does not take good root. One of those, of course, is because of the fact that these people hear the soil with great joy. They're really excited about their faith. They're really excited about the gospel, but there is no root. And so they simply end up shriveling. I like what one commentator says. He puts it like this. He says, people think that they can look like giant oaks without putting down deep roots. And when they realize how much effort it takes to put down deep roots, they too often settle for being bramble bushes. I think this gets at what we've talked about, about the fact that oftentimes we, even in the church, have a propensity for loving the exciting, the big and the bold. We love this. We love the miraculous. We love the things that show, oh, we're doing this big thing or that big thing. In fact, you almost always have a group of Christians, right, who oftentimes, you know, we like going from one uh, kind of spiritual uh, hit to the next, if you will, from one trending church to the next, one great Christian experience to the next. We just jump from one exciting endorphin hit to the next, right? And we just go from one thing to one thing to one thing. We love the dopamine. It's so incredible. But the problem is, is that when you go from one of those dopamine hits to the next, then you just have to, it's like when you become addicted to something. To have that hit, you have to go, it has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But there is no actual root. 
And so there's no growth. And then you keep wondering, well, what's wrong? Why am I not growing? Well, it's because we just keep going for one more spiritual hit. Just keep going. And, and there's no sense of actually being rooted in the word. And we don't even realize that what we are doing is we're creating a monster, a spiritual monster who will never be satisfied. So he says, no, 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 that's not the way to go. The way to go is not just to go from one big exciting thing to the next, because if you do so, you will end up like a bramble bush. Then there are others, you say, who get choked out because of the fact that they are too concerned with the cares of this world. Dale Bruner says, you know, what's good about this is that important to understand is that the cares of this world can actually be really good things. These aren't just insignificant things. These are oftentimes things that are good. In fact, maybe the end of this, uh, at the end of our passage where he talks about the family is, is perhaps a part of this. You know, this is this kind of offensive part almost, right? Where Mary and, and the brothers are kind of said, no, 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 you can't come right now. You gotta, you gotta stay out uh, of the crowds. Again, we've talked about this before, about how hurtful that would be probably if you were Mary or the brothers, you know? Um, and he says, no, no, what's most important is that you hear the word of God. You, these people around me are my mothers and my, my mother and my brothers. And it reminded me of a, of a sermon I preached on Luke 14. This was two years ago. You might want to, you can look it up if you want to get um, um, annoyed with me. Because it was a sermon where I talked about the fact that, you know, anything, no matter how good it is, can actually hinder our faith. It could be our love of America. That's the one that really got people mad. It could be uh, uh, the love of our children and their activities. It could be the love of our own freedoms. That anything, no matter how good it may seem, can begin to choke out our faith if it, if it becomes more important than our relationship with Jesus. So even the cares of our world that seem to be good and right can get in the way of our faith. But of course, so can our wealth. Now, we've talked a lot about wealth lately, and the reason we've talked about it is because Jesus talks about it a lot. So I'm not gonna go too far into it today, but I will say this. Um, Matthew Henry says that, amazingly enough, one of the things that hinders, that, that perhaps what hinders our faith even more than persecution is prosperity. Now, why would that be the case? Because prosperity is incredibly subtle. Persecution, not subtle. Prosperity is incredibly subtle to our faith. It is a silent killer, if you will. In fact, one of the things that makes it hard is that you are almost forced to kind of check it on your own. In other words, you have to do this kind of weekly or monthly or annual kind of check. How is wealth when it comes to my faith? You need to get a spiritual checkup. How do you do that? Generosity is one of those ways. When you begin to give, how does it feel? Is there a part of you that gets annoyed or frustrated? You know, I, I, every, every year, you know, I just did this last week. We started working on our taxes, you know, and, and whenever you, you work on your taxes, you think, oh, okay, this is great. And, 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 and then you look and you say, okay, well, we gave this much away. And if you gave away, you know, like a decent amount, you know, it's like, could have used that elsewhere. And it's very easy to begin to think, well, wow, if only we had this money, we could have done this or we could have done that. Or, or you get to the end and you think, man, felt like we were giving a lot, but we weren't actually doing that much. 
Whatever it is, it's always good to have that spiritual checkup and generosity is a great way to do that. Working with the poor, as we've said before, one of the things that the more wealthy you become, there should be a direct correlation between that and how often and how much you work with the poor. Because it helps to make sure that you are continuing to see things in the way in which Jesus would long for you to see them. So we have all these different things that can hinder the faith. And then finally, Jesus gets to the soil that is good, that is returning a hundredfold. Typically, soil would return around seven to ten, something like that. But this is returning a hundredfold. What makes it different? One of the things, of course, that makes it different is that this is a soil that Jesus says is honest and good and it bears fruit with endurance. Here's how one commentator says, he says, it's easy to make a good beginning, but reaching maturity and bearing fruit requires faithfulness, and I love this phrase, dogged endurance. Dogged endurance. What does this mean? What are we being doggedly enduring about? This is what's important. It's not about going out and doing a bunch of things with dogged endurance. It is about listening with dogged endurance. This is what Jesus says. This is what sets the soil apart. It is about being willing to listen. Most of us would love to be doggedly enduring about almost anything else in the world. But to have to be doggedly enduring about listening to Jesus and listening to one another is a remarkable challenge. And so we have to constantly be working at saying, what does it mean for us to listen? What does it mean for us to endure and to continue? We've been talking about this over the last few weeks to simply create space to not let those distractions of wealth or the distractions of, of the cares of this world or anything else to get in the way. One of the things Dale Bruner says about soil is it is remarkably passive. Do you notice that, the, the, again, the soil doesn't tend to jump up to the seed, but rather it simply receives the word again and again and again. And that we begin, our faith begins by simply listening and hearing the grace of the Almighty. And if we begin from the wrong place, again, we will end up chasing after the word rather than allowing it to sink deeply into us. And then out of that, of course, is how we begin to grow. Now, a lot of these things I would suggest, we probably oftentimes, if you've heard this parable, we've wrestled with it, we've heard it. But there was something else this week as I was looking at this particular parable that stood out to me that I'm not sure that I had necessarily read before, probably because we just get so caught up in the details. But I was thinking about this, especially because of the fact that we have middle schoolers uh, who are joining the church today. And so the question I wanted to ask myself is, what are they joining? Like, what does it mean to be the church? What does the church actually look like? What does the church do? Who is the church? And when I started looking at this particular parable and thinking about that question, my mind was drawn to this reality that most of the soil to which Jesus is speaking, do you know where it is found? In the church. 
It's not found elsewhere out in the world. You know, oh, well, you know what's wrong with everything is what's going on out there. Actually, more often than not, all of these things are very churchy kinds of soil, which means that the church is full of a bunch of people who are constantly getting it wrong. People who are hearing not very well, people who are being distracted by the pleasures of the world, distracted by our wealth. One commentator put it really starkly. He said, the greatest scandal of Christianity is probably the fact that there are very few people who live like it. That church history and church experience actually harm a lot of people's faith. But what's fascinating, it seems to me, as I looked at this passage, is that Jesus, the one who's really kind of starting the church, that he knew that this was the case, and he kept moving forward anyway. And he actually wasn't surprised in the least bit. As I thought about that, I was reminded of uh, something I read a few weeks ago. It was about the life of Moses. And Moses, at the end of his life, this is in Deuteronomy, he's about to die, and he wasn't going to be able to go into the promised land. Maybe you know the story. And he'd been with these people for a long time. You know, they'd just been wandering. He was the one who took this huge risk by going to the Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, and thought for sure they were going to die. And I mean, he just, he dealt with a lot of things over many years. You can imagine uh, what Moses was feeling after all this, but now they'd gotten kind of on this precipice. They were getting really close to the promised land. And God says, hey, Moses, um, this is in the 30th chapter. I, I wanna teach you a song that I want you to teach the Israelites. Why was that? Why did they need to teach the Israelites a song? Well, one, you know, Moses, because Moses, you're about to die. Uh, and so you need to do it because it's a lot easier to teach uh, when you're alive. And secondly, because the Israelites are about to go off the rails. And so here's how one person kind of paraphrased the 31st chapter. He says this, Moses, you're about to die, be buried with your ancestors. You'll no sooner be in your grave than this people will be up and chasing after foreign gods of this country that they are entering. They will abandon me and violate the covenant that I have made with them. So here's what I want you to do. Copy down this song and teach the people of Israel to sing it. They'll have it then as my witness against them. And when they begin fooling around with other gods and worshiping them, when things start falling apart with many terrible things happening, this song will be there with them as a witness to who they are and what went wrong. Their children won't forget this song. They will be singing it. And then right after that, you can read, he goes up on Mount Nebo, Moses does. He looks out over the promised land and he dies. Can you imagine that? This thing that you've been working with, these people that you've been working with all the while that you've been kind of, you've given your whole life to. I mean, think, you've got this great vet business. You build it up, just as an example, because I see you there, Kurt. This is not an advertisement for you. but And right before you die, God's like, hey, I want you to know something. <laughs> this business is about to tank. You, you put all of your sweat, 
all of your blood, everything that you can into these people. And I mean, I don't know why God felt like he needed to tell them this. And he says, hey, everything you've been working on just so that you know, it's all gonna go away. And then he dies. How dispiriting would that be? Don't you think this should be getting our middle schoolers excited about joining this group of people? Now, I know this is not a real pick-me-up on this, but here's what I love. I love that none of this surprises. When I mean, I love it when people are like, oh, you know, that church is full of hypocrites. You know, we've been talking about this of late. Oh. It's as if they are saying something new. God himself, Jesus knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that the church was going to be full of people who kept getting it wrong. It was no surprise. But here's what's amazing. Jesus did it anyways. He said, it's all right. You know what? I still love you. And I'm going to keep inviting you into this group. And I'm going to keep coming after you. And I'm going to keep, you know, telling you to form this community. I know you're going to go this way and that. You're going to miss it. You're not going to listen very well. You're going to get caught up in your money and the cares of this world. You're going to, you know, be, oh, this is so exciting. And only go with the exciting and not go with things that seem like they're actually going to bring you roots. And, and he does it. He's like, no, I'm going to do it anyways because I love you. And so he still forms the community anyways. And what I love about it as well is the scripture, how it doesn't try to fool us. It simply points to the reality in the midst of it. And in a world of fake news and false narratives and glossy advertisements and over-promising but under-delivering, the Bible is raw and honest as it can possibly be. And I think it is refreshing in that way. I actually think it's something that we should let our lights shine about, as Jesus says. Not as some kind of excuse. Well, we don't really have to work towards being active listeners because Jesus knew we would fail. No, but as this remarkable opportunity to point to Jesus in the very midst of everything that we are getting wrong. And you see, I think that this is actually just like it's been for generations, exactly what young people need right now. You know, almost every time that we have these middle school inquirers joining, I probably mention how my mind always goes back to me and into middle school. Right, as I've shared before, this was right at sixth grade was when I, you know, moved across the country with my mom and my sister from Washington State to Florida after my parents' divorce. We moved there without my father. And in a matter of about eight months, I guess, from when my father said he was leaving until we arrived in Pensacola, Florida, all of a sudden my life just completely changed, right, from what I thought it was going to be to what it actually had become. I moved to Pensacola, a city that I didn't know, uh, that I ended up really hating by and large. I ended up leaving all of my friends. I ended up thinking that, oh, this is exactly what the future was supposed to look like, and it didn't look like that. All of these secrets, all of these things that kind of came out in the midst of this, I was as lost, I think, as I could possibly be. And in the middle of all of that, I end up 
here at this particular church that I can assure you was not trending in any way. This church was unexciting. It was full of kind of weird people in many ways. They were no Mother Teresa's as far as I can remember. They were imperfect. They were flawed. And yet, and yet they had enough seed in their mixed soil that they were able still to reflect enough of Jesus to me as a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old to know that even though deep down I oftentimes wondered how could God have done this? Surely God has forgotten about me. In the midst of that, these flawed and imperfect soil was able to remind me that no, God is still here. And in the very midst of all of these questions and all of this anger and all of my frustration and sadness, in the midst of that, there were these people who kept pouring into me. And my guess is that 99% of them have no idea, even to this very day, what kind of impact they had on this 12 and 13-year-old boy. Because I can promise you, I did not let them think I cared at all. And yet there is rarely a week that goes by that I do not look back at that church and give God remarkable praise because without that church, I feel quite confident that I would not be where I am today, that I would not have this family that I have today, that I would not know that I was as loved by God as I am. What our young people need, it seems to me, is not a church that entertains them to death or keeps them from going from one spiritual dopamine hit to another, or who fills their calendar with one more important event, or an image of a perfect people. What they need are a group of mixed soil who are willing to do the hard work of listening to God and listening to one another who are not afraid to admit their moments or even seasons of rocky soil, but a people who know that the church is not about pointing to themselves. It is about always pointing to Jesus. It is about pointing to the sower who casts feed, who casts seed far and wide with a reckless and passionate love. And in so doing, I am here to tell you, you have the remarkable opportunity to be mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters to one another. A church broken and mended, flawed and forgiven. A church that constantly points to Jesus and to Jesus alone. May we have the courage to be that church. And in so doing, will we let our light shine. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be this church. Not to be the church who thinks that we have to be perfect or hide those imperfections 
but a church that actively listens to you and to one another. And in so doing, God, might we be a light to the community and to the world around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.